the reading today is uh, Psalm 3 and 4. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you. Uh, since it's holidays, I thought that we would um, continue in our tracking uh, the Lord's um, CD collection. Uh, you know that the Psalms are the songs of God's people. So this is the top 150 all right, on the chart, um, and it's always good for us. So I'm sure if I asked you what your favorite psalm is, you would be able to tell me. Anyone? Anyone has his favorite psalm? Pull up one, 139, 42 and 43, 145. Okay, now for those of you who have said it, please stand up and recite those songs. <laughs> isn't it true? If it's really your favorite, you would be able to recite it, isn't it? Uh, you play the songs over and over in your heads. Um, but I do think it's actually true that the psalms are fantastic. They are God's kind of top 150. Um, and it's good for us to expand our repertoire, our ability to uh, uh, enjoy what God has given us um, through the words of people, which is one of those really funny things about the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms is not God speaking directly to us, thus says the Lord. It is actually people speaking to God and God then saying, ah, I like that way of you addressing me um, and I'm going to put it together and so that everybody else can learn how to address me too. So we want to expand your um, ability. So I thought what I'm going to do over the next 400 years or whatever, um, that we will kind of keep on just working our way systematically through the Psalms whenever we have a bit of a break uh, in our uh, term time, um, just to get aware and become used to it. Because 
There are so many seasons of life. So I'm sure you have music that you play that kind of puts you in the right mood for something. And sometimes you are in the mood and you're looking for music that fits that mood. Is that true? Anybody's like that? Um, and the Psalms are in one sense like that. They are actually given to us so that we can use them when we are maybe in a mood or maybe get ourselves in the mood uh, to worship God. And there is not one single situation, emotion, uh, context that uh, the Psalms is not addressing at some other point. So as we go in familiarity, we hope that you will be able to sing more and rejoice more. So this morning, we want to actually talk about the evening. All right. So as you will note there on your outline, uh, I've kind of entitled this The Songs for Sleepless Nights. So what keeps you awake at night? Some of you have confessed that the birds wake you up before you want to and then they keep you awake. Um, anybody else? Some of you wake up 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I've heard a number of confessions on that in the last while. That uh, Some people are so good, they wake up and they say, I think it's 1.30. And they pick up the watch and then it is 1.30. Or they sleep and then they wake up at 4 o'clock and they say it's 4 o'clock. And then they look at their watch and it says 4 o'clock. So sometimes you get woken up in the middle of your sleep. Sometimes you find it difficult to go to sleep, isn't it? What keeps you awake? I mean, birds can wake you up. The neighbors can be noisy. Your wife can snore. You know, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can keep one awake and wake you up and make it difficult. I take it a lot of times. It really is relational. Um, when relationships are difficult, hard, when circumstances are difficult and hard, when you're anxious, when you're angry, when you're worried, um, when you're bitter, uh, when you play stuff through your head over and over and over and over. Um, there's a whole host of reasons I take it why it is sometimes difficult for us to sleep and experience the joy um, of this. And that's why I thought this psalm, these two psalms are going to kind of put together. Let me just show you why. Um, quickly, if you turn to chapter 3 and verse 5, he actually tells us uh, that uh, I lay down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And then again in chapter 4 and in verse 8, he says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. So the two Psalms are really dealing, in one sense, with how David came around to sleeping, when it was not that easy to sleep, when it was uh, kind of hard to try and sleep. And in the Psalm, uh, it tells us that the first Psalm, which uh, Talbot didn't read for us, was a Psalm of David, the superscription, as you call it there, when he fled from his son Absalom. So sometimes the Psalms gives us a historical reference. There's a very specific thing that happened, and David is responding to that, and he's dealing with issues in that. And then Psalm 4, again, doesn't have any historical reference. So we've got no idea what is the real connection. Are the two Psalms connected? Maybe. It looks like it on one hand. The whole of Psalm 3 is all about first person for seven verses, and then the eighth verse, he includes God's people. In Psalm 4, he starts with himself, speaks to other people in the middle, and ends with himself. So it seems like he is actually saying, uh, I'm going to teach you something about my experience, and I'm inviting you to learn from me. So that's why I thought we'll put the two Psalms together, and uh, we'll have a look and see what he's saying. So often, the Psalms are saying, 
even though we're not in exactly the same situation, we often find ourselves in similar situations. If you note on your outline, you'll find the word similar quite often there. When we are in similar kind of situations, we are occupied with similar thoughts, should have been S with the thought and feelings, um, and we learn to respond in similar ways with similar confidence and leading to similar outcomes. So that's why I thought we'll just work our way through the Psalms, get to know them and grow up in them. And maybe Psalm 3 and 4 will become a favorite for you in a certain season of your life as you find it maybe difficult to sleep. So let's have a look. What was David's reason for not being able to sleep? And it's quite a, 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 a hard one, I take it. Chapter 3, uh, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Is there anything that can upset a parent more than their kids? Is there really anything that keeps a parent more awake than the worry they have about their children? Often that's the case, isn't it? Now, this is problems with your kids on steroids. This is not David worrying about Absalom because Absalom has gone off the rails. This is David fleeing from his son Absalom who wants to kill him because he's taken over his kingdom. How's that for family problems? You think you'll stay awake? Worried about what's going on? That's really bizarre, isn't it? You can go and read about this entire section in 2 Samuel 15 to about 18, 19, and the whole incident where, I mean, this must, I mean, this must rip your heart out. That your own son has conspired against you, actually tells us for years. And then once he won the people of Israel, he kind of cemented his authority and he got a whole army together and said, now we're going to kill my dad. Let's have some fun. And he had to flee for his life. That's the original context of Psalm 3. <laughs> How do you sleep in a context like that? Uh, that is quite severe. I'm sure we have issues with our children. They make us angry. They make us sad. They confuse us. We're worried about them. They maybe have sworn at us. They may have rejected us. They may have rejected our faith. They may have you know, done all sorts of terrible things. And so, in one sense, uh, this situation kind of captured it pretty well. And he says, not only did that happen, now look at what it says in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are in a situation. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And then in verse 2, he tells us what that distress is. How long... Will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods or seek lies, as an alternative translation says? So he's saying people are against him. His son is against him, and people have joined his son. I mean, isn't that what you do when you are looking to, when you don't like somebody? You go and you find a whole lot of other people that also don't like that person. And you team up on him, isn't it? I mean, if you ever had a disagreement in your family, the kids team up against you with the wife or you and the wife against the kids. Or You, know, it's, you never want to fight alone, do you? You always want more people to come. And David is saying more and more people have come and they are joining in 
to the situation. And so how do you respond to a situation like that? What goes through your mind? What's your emotions like? Resentment? Anger? Sadness? Disbelief? Anxiety? Fear? I take it all of them and more is what's going through David's head as he's trying to battle to figure out what is really going on. Have you ever, have anybody ever sworn at you? Rejected you? Spoke behind your back? Family member? Worst church family member? Somebody who is breaking you down in the background? Gossiping about you? Telling people that, you know, you are not that great. You know, maybe Satan is whispering in your ears. What do you do? How do you deal with that? Where do you go when those kinds of things happen? So David is really helping us to try and figure this out. Um, and so maybe if we understand something of the similarity of our human experience, maybe we can learn from him and how he's dealing with this uh, before God. And interestingly enough, it's like always in the Psalms, they turn to God. I mean, that sounds like such a funny thing. But let me just explain to you in this way, maybe the easiest way is, if you are in a crowd of people, and there are some young children around, um, and one of them get into a fright, or one of the other kids take their toy, or they bump their toe, or whatever, what do they normally do? They scream, and then... Scream for who? Mummy or daddy? Okay, mostly mummy. Okay, woman, you've got one up on us, all right? Most of the time it's for mummy. Have you tried to pick up that kid if it's not yours? Not a good idea. Facial re reconstruction and all sorts of things can happen. Because the kid instinctively, emotionally, goes to where it is safe. David has learned over the years that when I get into a place where others are attacking me, and I am out of sorts, the best place for me to go is to God himself. I go to him. That's my safe place. That's very interesting. That is exactly what the New Testament tells us the Spirit of God does. It's the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And we cry, Abba, Father, in exactly the context when life is overwhelming, isn't it? When life is too much for us, often in the context of sin, just in the context of suffering and confusion and perplexity. Where do I go? So David tells us, and once we all know, he runs to God. He goes to God, and he goes and tells him... I can trust you because I am not so sure who I can trust now anymore. I run to you. So that's what he's doing. He runs to God. But again, if you're anything like me, I have prayed in more than one fashion to God. I've gone to God, but I've gone with an attitude of complaining. I've gone to him with an attitude of demand. I've gone to the in an attitude of Slight accusation. I won't. I can't say that too loud because you know ministers aren't supposed to say that. I've been angry at God. I've been demanding at God. Or I can go in an attitude like David, of actually telling God who He is for me, asking Him to help me, and enable me to deal 
with the situation. So what I want you to see is that's exactly what he's doing. Look at, Lord, how many are my foes? Verse 1, chapter 3, how many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. So even here's a fascinating thing. I mean, there's one point where it's actually quite a long section in 2 Samuel 16 where a guy, kind of a, a descendant from Saul, sees David fleeing and he runs up to David and he starts cursing him and pelleting him with stones while David is surrounded by a couple of his own army men. And he swears at him and curses him. And one of the guys says, hey, David, uh, can I just go and quickly cut his head off? And David says, no, no, don't. Maybe God told him to come and curse me. Maybe I must accept what he's doing currently. God will stand up for me. I will not stand up for myself. That's incredible. You have pretty much confidence in God to do that. So here David says, I come to you and I ask you, I tell you my story. Lord, you know all the people who are against me. You know all those who are telling me, God will never deliver you again. You are done for it. There's no hope for you. Now today I take it in our context, not only people say that, but Satan says that to us. You are done for. There's no hope for you. And so David goes into an interesting thing. He actually does what we would call meditative prayer dialogue, for lack of a better word. Psalm 1 tells us that every single part of God's word must be meditated on. It means I need to repeat it so that I can hear it, so that I can... Get the juice out of it so that I can really benefit from it. So you know what they say. One of the problems with our modern people today is that we eat too fast. You're supposed to chew how many times? Where's some of the... the is it 40 times before you swallow? All right. You're supposed to slow down and know what you're eating, almost feel what you're eating, sensing it, because that helps you with absorption, and it helps you with having a better digestive system, and it helps you to cope with this. And that's what the Bible says. Meditate on God. Eat it. Chew it. Chew the cud, actually, is what he's saying. Like a cow. You know, you eat the food once, then he brings it up into his second, third stomach. Then he chews it again. Then he swallows it. Then he brings it up again. Then he chews it. And eventually it produces milk. It's amazing. So we cannot expect to hear a word of God and suddenly it's going to change my life in a flash. It is actually meditating, thinking it over and over and over that I learned to do that. That's what he's actually saying. And here in this psalm, he actually gives us a little bit of an insight. So look at verse 3. Because here is probably one of those little instances where David is literally meditating on the word of God in the context of absolute rejection. He had to flee for his life from his own family. I mean, this is really bad. But listen to what he says. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high, or the lifter of my head. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so what he's doing, he's reminding himself of who God is. Now, again, you must remember that those three things that he mentions there are the very three things he's just lost. He's lost his shield. He's lost his army. The king has lost that which stands around him. He says, but, you know, I may have lost my army, but I haven't lost the source of my protection, which is God himself. I've lost my glory. It means I can no longer stay in the highest 
biggest building on the top of the hill, the palace. I'm now down in the gutter at the bottom. He says, but you are my glory. My glory isn't in what I have accumulated and who I am and what I've accomplished. My glory is you are my glory. I mean, isn't that amazing? In this context, when everybody is saying to him, you've lost it all, or the evidence is there is that he's lost it all, he's saying, you are my shield, you are my glory. And then the, the last one, isn't it? You are the one who lifts up my head. When you are humbled, you look down, isn't it? When you're depressed, you look down, turn into yourself. He says, no, no, my God is not only my shield. He won't only protect me. He is my glory. And he will put his hand under my chin and lift up my face. That is who he is for me. Even though I am in this situation. Because that is who God is and how God has actually revealed himself to me. Isn't that amazing? Now that takes an enormous amount of faith, doesn't it? To actually be able to respond like that. To not attack. To not blame others. To not expect others to come through for you. To not point fingers at everybody or to God for that matter. David doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't even blame his son. He says, God, you are everything I need. I've lost everything in one sense, and yet I've lost nothing because you are with me, because you're the one who cares for me. You're the one who looks after me. And David is pointing us in that direction, and he's saying, that is what I've done. That's, that's a good thing to do. I have not lost the source of life, even though I may have lost everything else around me. Now, that is incredible, isn't it? Now, you and me can learn to respond like that to life. That's what David is encouraging us to do. He's sharing with us his story so that we ourselves may know that that is true, that is possible. And so, not only does he talk to himself about God, he also talks to himself about what people are saying about him. So, go to chapter 4. Very interesting. He's not afraid to engage what other people are saying of him because he knows what God says about him. See how weird it is? So look at chapter 4, uh, Psalm 4, sorry, verse 2. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love disillusions and seek false gods or seek lies? So he's kind of in his mind, he's saying, ah, you guys are saying God will not deliver me. You are saying to me, you've got no glory, you've got no more hope. And He's saying, you guys are seeking lies and delusions. Verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant or his godly ones for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He's not as afraid to engage and admit to himself what other people are saying about him. Because he's thinking and weighing it up before God. And he's saying, God, you are the one who will lift up my face. No matter what accusation people bring against me, you are the one that will vindicate me. You are the one that will restore me. It's in you that I trust. So I can listen to what people are saying without pushing it away and denying it, running away from it. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that what partly we want to do? When somebody breaks you down or says something about you, you want to immediately just completely dismiss it. That is, no, no, I can hear this. I can almost 
take it because I bring this into this dialogue between myself and God and I can bring him and ask him, he is the one who will hear me when I call. He is the one who will restore me. And then thirdly, just note that he actually includes us more or less in the psalm, verses 4 of chapter of, the, of Psalm 4. Tremble or be angry and do not sin. Anyone can remember where that comes from in the New Testament? Quoted in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry, but do not sin. The word actually is tremble rather than anger. When you are angry, what do you tend to do? How do somebody know that you're angry? How does somebody know that you're anxious? How does somebody know that you're worried? Amazing, isn't it? He's saying no matter what mood you are in, in the light of the context that you are in, Tremble. I mean, isn't that weird? <laughs> Experience it. Don't suppress it. Experience it. Allow it to have its effect on you, but do not sin. Hmm. Now, that's a difficult part. Feel the rejection. Feel the fear. Don't try and minimize. Don't try and push it down, but do not allow that to rule you. And he helps you with this whole thing, isn't it? When you're on your bed, so experience your anxiety. Allow yourself to feel it. Just don't share it with somebody else. Your anger, experience it. Feel it. Know it. But do not do it on to others. You do it to yourself. I mean, isn't that weird? That's very healthy, actually. Make it, you experience it. Your anxiety, your fear, whatever it is. Then look at what it says. When you're on your bed... Search your heart. So why am I so upset about this? Search your heart, he says. Search it. The answer is not always that obvious. I remember years ago, when I was still young and, and, and good-looking and wise, and so I wasn't married at that stage. So a friend of mine got married. And uh, he was about six months ahead of me. We were all actually, just a bit of a joke, we, we formed a, a bachelor's club when we came to varsity. Uh, we none, none of us are going to get girls and none of us are going to get married. It was kind of a part of a joke. It lasted for about six months. And I became the honorary president because I was the only one who managed to last for six months at varsity without getting a girlfriend. Any case, soon after that, the guy started to get married. And uh, I was the one not married. I was the last of the four to get married. But... Um, my friend of mine was married for about six months, and I went to visit him on his farm. And uh, I remember saying to him, sitting and having a glass of wine and around the farm, I said to him, you know, how, how, how's it going? How's, how's married life? And he sat back like a man with six months' experience. <laughs> and he said to me, what I've learned is when I come home and my wife seems upset, and I ask her, what's going on? I must never believe the first answer. <laughs> It normally is about the fifth, sixth answer that is actually the reason why she's upset. Now, I mean, I'm not taking out a woman. I just think that's what we are like, isn't it? I mean, do you really know why, what upsets you and why? You've got to take time to peel this thing, to allow yourself to feel the pain, the sadness, the frustration, the anger, the bitterness. Allow it to mold you, you say. On your bed, lie on your bed there. You can't sleep in any case. So you might as well use the time well. 
Lie there and experience it and search your heart, which is your value system, your belief system. What do you believe? What do you hope? Where is your hope? And what is your hope? How will you reconstruct things to make them better? Who must stop doing what and start doing what? And You know, I mean, are you like me? I mean, I've got a plan for how God can run this world much better with the people that is in my life. And he says, allow yourself, your heart, your deepest recesses, start to play with it in one sense. Allow it to, to bring up, how afraid are you? How terrified are you? Let it play. And then he says, and then be silent. Now, do not act it out. Be silent. And then, verse 5, offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust the Lord. That's a very interesting verse. It could either mean offer the sacrifices of righteousness, e.g., trust the Lord. What is the sacrifice of the righteous? It's a broken and contrite heart before God. Not just bringing actual sacrifices in those days. You're on your bed. You can't now bring it. I mean, the temple is closed, okay, in those days. You can't go to the temple. He's saying, no, no, the actual sacrifice is submitting yourself to God. What he's been doing in one sense. He's giving us advice, saying this is how you can do it. Experience it. Let it cause real terror in you to see where your heart really goes for the solution and then become quiet and then submit your heart. Because you can. You can submit your own heart and your own mind to God. Isn't that the most amazing thing about being human? We're the only creature that we know that can actually think about what we are thinking about. And we're the only ones who can actually think something and not accept it as true. We can entertain a thought without feeling we have to accept this as true, which is what we should desperately teach the young people today. People say, if you feel like that's who you are. I mean, sheepers, I mean, I must then be about, have about 180 personalities. That's terrible to say that to a human being, that what you feel is who you are. No, no, you've got a, you've got a, you, you're made unique. You can actually think and know what you feel and not accept it. And to understand who you have been made by God. Isn't that incredible? You can do that with every single emotion, every thought, especially when it comes to those dark, fearful, anxious thoughts. He says you can plumb them and not accept them as the ultimate reality, even though they feel so ultimately true, isn't it? Isn't that what's so hard? You feel this is never going to change. How does it feel when you feel it's never going to change? Where does your heart go? See what David is saying? It's amazing, amazing, isn't it? We have the ability to, huh, what if this never changes? Where do I go? He says, now take your heart to God because he is the one who is able to change it when you can't change things. Ultimately, we see that obviously in the Lord. But you see how magnificent these psalms are? You've got you've to eat this stuff. You've got to chew it, chew the cud. He says so much in that short little space you can save yourself and a whole lot of people that you know an enormous amount of frustration and pain and anguish if you can help them and help yourself to apply that, isn't it? I mean, there's wisdom beyond what you will ever find. And I'm not knocking psychologists and psychiatrists. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking them. They're doing a great job. But listen to this. Can you help your child? Can you help yourself? Can you help your spouse? Can you help your friends to say, listen, 
What are you feeling? Feel it. See where it takes you. Do not express it to others. Know where you are. And then bring it to God and trust Him. That's what He's saying, isn't it? Incredible. Verse 16, in one sense. I've got the new NIV, so my translation is, I think they've made it, they've given away the answer before. They said, the question is, who will bring us any good thing? Where will you get what is good that will last forever? Says people. How can good come again in a situation like this? David is being persecuted and pursued by his own very child. How can, who will bring good about here? Look at what he says. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You're the only one. You're the only one who can bring good out of every situation. Isn't that one of the great themes we believe in in Romans chapter 8? God is able to bring about good in all things for those who love him. And that's really what he's saying. I take it most of our problems is that we get answers and we get solved issues long before we get to the point where the Lord is the only solution. So we don't really know what we have in God because we actually solve it temporarily for a short time before we actually need to get to this kind of space. I mean, where do you go in this space? He says, I've been there, I've done that. The Lord must make his face shine upon me. So why could David do this? I mean, how does he know God is on his side? Have you asked yourself that question? How on earth is David so convinced that God is so good on his side? Now you've got to just separate a couple of things. God is on no one's side. All right? God is on his own side. The question is, are you on his side? Does it make sense? You know when you have an argument with somebody? I mean, you can pull out ten verses to prove that God must be on your side. But you've got to learn this. God is on no one's side. God is on his own side. The question is, are you on his side? And that's why, if you go to chapter, Psalm 3, verse 4, he says, I call to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. His holy mountain is where God has made himself declare his presence, his reality to Israel after he saved them out of Egypt. He showed them his plans and purposes. He showed him his glory and the fact that his goal is to save mankind. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who recognizes they can't save themselves and come to me recognizing I'm the only one, I will save. That is who I am. That is what I'm on about. So David says, I come to you, Lord. You are the righteous one. Look again at Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call you my righteous God. You are righteous. And because you are righteous, I need you to relieve my distress. And you must please have mercy on me. Because if I come before you on my terms, on my righteousness, there is absolutely no hope in this situation. I can't plead my righteousness ever. I can only plead your mercy. Since you have revealed yourself to be a God of righteousness, of goodness, and whoever comes and asks, he will receive. Whoever comes and say, I need you to save me, that's the one. So David is confident because he's doing exactly what God has invited him to do. 
when God revealed himself. Now God brings about deliverance. God brings about salvation. Psalm 3 verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance or salvation. May your blessing be on your people. It is only from him that it comes. Now, I mean, again, friends, this is not easy. You must remember how long was Israel in Egypt before God saved them? 400 years. God is the Savior on his terms and his timetable. That's not so always so lacquer. And yet, that is our only hope, that God does save and that he does it on his timetable. But that's why David is so confident. I know who you are. You have revealed yourself. I know that you're the deliverer. I know that you are righteous. I know my only hope is mercy. And I come to you and I bring the sacrifices of I admit that. Gladly admit that this situation is way beyond me. You have taught me yet again that this is true. For the temporal as well as the eternal. You alone are my hope. And so I come to you and I call on you. And you will make your face shine on me. Anyone who knows where that comes from? Numbers. The great priestly promise. Numbers 626. That I will make my face shine on you. And I will be good to you. And I will give you my peace. That's what he's saying. He's really just recalling all the things that he knows is true about God. Now, we have far more reason to have confidence than David did, isn't it? We all know the story doesn't end yet. The story runs all the way through all the various kings that God has raised up over time until it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 4 verse 3 kind of gives us a hint. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Psalm 2 is all about the Messiah that will rule and no one will be able to overthrow him. And we all know that the greater David, Jesus has come. Now I want you just to remember that Jesus knows exactly what David went through. Because Jesus was rejected by his family. Jesus was rejected by all of humanity. Jesus was cursed and spit at by the very people he came to save. He knows exactly what it is like to be told there's no hope for you. I mean, remember they're standing at the cross and say, ha, 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 let's see if God comes and takes him off. Let's see if Elijah may come and help him. They mocked him. Jesus knows exactly what David is going through. And Jesus knows exactly that he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He called on the name of the Father and he was saved. He was actually resurrected. He came and know exactly how. So, I mean, if, there's a, if David is a good example, then I take it Jesus is even a better example in reality to run to. That there is not anything that you've experienced that Jesus does not know and he has not failed in trusting the Father in the midst of that. That's the good news for us, isn't it? The certainty we can have is way beyond what David had. David had the Old Testament covenant. We have the new covenant in Christ Jesus. We've got the Jesus who says that at every turn and point, he cried out to God to save him in the midst of his pain and suffering. And God heard him because of his reverent submission. Jesus is the one who does not retaliate when he's rejected. He does not threaten. He doesn't use his power. He doesn't wipe out those who doesn't disagree with him. He actually lays down his life to die for them, for us. 
That's why we can have so much more confidence than David. That there is nothing that you can go through that God can't save you through. Now, that doesn't always sound great, does it? Have you ever read Romans chapter 8, the last bit? <laughs> shall, shall persecution separate us from the love of God? Famine? Hardship? Death? Nakedness? Those things can happen, he says. He actually goes one step further and it's really, really scary. God can consider you to be one of the sheep he wants to slaughter for his namesake. And even that will not separate you from his love. Now, friends, you've got to do some really hard thinking when you understand the magnitude of the assurance that we can have that David in one sense knew and yet we have the full evidence of that. We have better confidence before God. That there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. And we need to keep on encouraging one another to do that. And then I take it, if that happens, you will have a similar outcome, just as we come to the end. And we've already mentioned that right up front. David slept well. He came to a place of peace. He could rest in God. Verse 8 of Psalm 4. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Not my army, not my glory and my money, not my children, nothing else but you, the one who actually gives that to me. And we know that in Christ Jesus, that is exactly what he has given us. The outcome can be the same, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that what you find? When you wrestle these things through, that's when you get to the point where you can rest. And we are given that. We get to work out these things. And then maybe just the last thing to say. Complete the process. What, I'm, what do I mean by that? I take it one of the great things where we short-circuit ourselves sometimes is that we, if I had to sit down and talk, I'm sure each one of you had at some stage done something of what this psalm was talking about, about a crisis or a sadness in your life. What David is trying to teach us is share it. He wrote it down. He made sure that others may hear the truth of what God is like. Now, some of us are good. Some of us can write the story. Some of us are poetic. You can put it in poetry. Some of like Bruce, we can give him a bit of a job. He can put it to music for us. Because that's what the Psalms are, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? The, the fullness of recovery comes when you can say it so that others may benefit too. That's the declaration that the Psalms are trying to drive you towards. Don't stop short. I mean, don't make it a law. Don't stop. Maybe you want to share, maybe in poetic language if you're good at it, in music. This is what God has done for me in this situation. This is how I work it through. Isn't that great? Aren't we benefiting because he's doing it? I want to encourage you to work it through. And when you have done that, share it. Tell people about what God has done for you and how you've wrestled your way through. So I hope you all sleep well tonight. And if you don't, here's a help for you to work your way through. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your word is in one sense so practical and yet so deep. 
Yes, Lord, I admit that often I am much more keen to have the pain go away than to work through where my heart goes when there's pain. And so, Lord, I often rob myself of the absolute security and hope that is to be found in you alone. We've already heard this morning, this life is upside down. This life is broken. You said so. In this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome it. Lord, there is nowhere else that we can look to someone who has actually overcome all the troubles of life, even death itself, than the Lord Jesus Christ. So won't you help us to get to know our own fears and to plumb the depths of our own solutions until we get to that point for the moment where we recognize that we do not have the resources to actually deal with it. You and you alone have. Thank you that you are in one sense by your grace stripping us of our delusions that we can hold on to life and that we can make it work. Thank you that you are kind and you give us these things every now and again and sometimes they feel longer than, than other times. But thank you that you would encourage us to not deny how we feel, to tremble, but not to sin, but to come up with our own reconstructions of how to do it, but to know the depth of our anguish and our fear and our anxiety and to lay it before you, Lord, and to bring before you our broken and our contrite hearts, our desperation, and then, Lord, to trust you, for you have revealed yourself ultimately the clearest in your Son, Oh, Lord, help us to taste and to see that you are good, to experience the gift of your Spirit in our inner convictions. And, Lord, we pray that we will not keep this to ourselves, that we will share with a world that comes up with all sorts of solutions, that we may share with them the solution, the Lord Jesus Christ. So calm our hearts, Lord. It may take time. Maybe we're not ready this morning to trust you like this. Maybe we still have experienced that some of our own solutions work for a little bit. We pray that you will teach us, as you always do, that you will peel us, that you will purify us. Lord, that we may come more and more with greater confidence to you, that life and goodness is in your hands. Tomorrow is in your hands. It may be a thousand, ten thousand people against me. But since I am with you, I can sleep well and wake up knowing that nothing can separate me from you. Give us that deep-seated, Lord, understanding. Help us to sing this as a song for your glory and for our own peace and for the joy of your people. And we pray this in your name.